Amen. Tonight we're finishing up the look at the Heidelberg Catechism. Actually, questions 128 to 129. So off there by one with what we're going to be looking at. But first we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 113 and look at verses 1 through 9 there, the entire psalm. <clears throat> psalm 113, verses 1 through 9. As we are encouraged again to marvel at the fact that there is no one like the Lord our God. And we're considering the conclusion that we tack on to our prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Questions 128 and 129. First, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks down, looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. We look at questions 127 and 128 as well. Or excuse me, I did that anyway, didn't I? Questions 128 and 129, where we, uh, on page 63 in the Psalter Hymnal, we've got this question and answer in question 128. What does your conclusion to this prayer mean? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever means we've made all these requests of you because as our all-powerful king, you not only want to, but are able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. Question 129 asks, what does that little word amen express? Amen means this is sure to be. It's even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. May God's word be a blessing to us tonight, to be sure. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, running across people who treat us as if we don't deserve their attention it can be a very frustrating thing, as I'm sure you know. It can be annoying. It can be humiliating if you ever have that experience. Maybe you're just trying to say hello to somebody or, or maybe make a little bit of conversation, but the person is cold or aloof or has a very superior attitude and to try to do that sometimes amongst the famous to just walk up to them and and expect a conversation is uh, not very likely to occur but it can be a humiliating even if it isn't somebody famous maybe a teacher or pastor or a parent or boss or, or anybody for that matter who treats us like that uh, sometimes we're tempted to, to label such people as snobs, as people think that they're above us. And we certainly don't want to see that happening in our parents or, or in our children. 
or in our teachers or, or anybody else that we encounter. We shouldn't want that for ourselves either. We shouldn't want to be that, that kind of people that can't give people even the time of day. Uh, we ought not to see it in ourselves then, because when we, when we profess Christ as followers of Christ, we know that if, if that was the way that the Lord Jesus treated us, and that he treated us as our sins deserve, uh, we would be lost indeed. As it stands as Christians, we know that our Father in heaven is superior to us. When you hear the conclusion that we have on the Lord's Prayer, we think about really the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we recognize that exalted element of God, of the Lord. We're praying about that excellence and that superiority uh, and we remember as we do that, that we're also coming to the one who isn't the one who's in need because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but we're coming as those who are in need because he's the superior one, we're the lesser. This is what we admit. Not only when we begin our prayers with the Lord's Prayer the way we do, but also in the ways that we conclude the Lord's prayer the way we do. Now, admitting to inferiority and admitting to need doesn't come naturally to people. But in relationship to God, that is something that we are admitting. When we pray, we're saying, God, you're the exalted one and we're the needy one. We need your help. When we go to God, we're going to the top. And that is indeed why we conclude our prayers the way we do. We don't lose sight of that. Thine is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. We pray the important things. We, we pray that the name of God may be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he would give us this day our daily bread, that he would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that he would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we do that knowing that it's God Almighty to whom we're petitioning, and, it, and he's willing to fill that need. No wonder we say amen, that it's sure to be. These need to be filled, and God's the one who's able and willing to fill them. So we see that in this psalm where, as well, where the excellence of the Lord is shown, which right throws him up in that those higher stratospheres. And then we, yes, at the same time, we don't find a snobbish God, but we also see this God who's willing to stoop down and consider us where it is that we are in contrast to him. And when we see that in the psalm, when we think about that as praying, then it's no wonder that a believer would say, as the psalmist would, who is like the Lord, our God? And so we look at those two contrasting but very uh, beautiful points that we find there, that on the one hand there is this excellent God, and there is at the same time his condescending care. Psalm begins, we look at the excellence of the Lord by calling people to praise three times. There's no doubt there's different reasons for that, but, but when you hear that from the psalm, 
praise the Lord, praise those servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, you recognize that that's a, a number of excellence. It's superlative. It might also be a, a triple reminder to people that if you have any inkling about whether or not praising God is worth your time, uh, forget it. Because we're talking about superlative praise to a superlative God. The psalmist uses this call, this triple call, to describe the Lord in a superlative way. Praise, praise, praise. Praise the Lord, oh praise the servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. The superlative Lord deserves superlative praise, especially from those who have gone from being servants of bondage and evil to servants of God. This transformation that we see actually filling this psalm, especially the farther we go into it, we see this 180-degree kind of, of, of uh, action dynamic that shows itself up in this psalm. But one person has said that those who fully enter into the service of the Lord, and we think about that again over this Labor Day holiday when people are talking about their service that they give to others or, or the efforts that they put in to others or, or into the product or into their work, this one person has said, those who fully enter into the service of the Lord discover in that service a thousand reasons for adoration. Now, he would go on to say, they are sure to praise God best who serve him best. They really do go hand in hand. We do praise the Lord for what he's done for us. But it's good for us to be able to, to look at life for us, and we think about the, the service to which we've been called. It is good for us to remember that we have reason to praise the Lord simply because we have been given the enabling in Christ to enter into his service. The very fact that we can serve our God, to have that privilege of serving our God, is a reason to praise God. Take on whatever you're taking on, but see it as a reason to praise God all the more. The privilege to be where you are, to serve where you are, is a reason to give praise to God because you get to serve God wherever it is where he has placed you. You serve him because of what the wondrous works he's done, but you also get, can praise him because you've been called to his service, and what a privilege that is. So we certainly praise him with our service, but we're also to praise him because we've been given the privilege of serving him every single day in Christ. The servant of the Lord goes on to describe the exaltation of the Lord's name in another superlative that includes verse 1, but also verse 2 and 3, because all these verses speak about the name of the Lord. In verses 2 and 3, the servant of the Lord speaks about the time and the space 
in which this praise should be done. It covers all ages and all over. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. There's neither a time in our lives nor a place in this world that the praise of our God doesn't deserve our attention. Such a wide scope in time and place points to the Lord's goodness and his greatness, his sovereignty and his excellence to thine, thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory. And it points out to us again that, that all of our time is to be devoted to the Lord. We're to look at the use of our time as a time where we are to be seeking and magnifying the praise of the Lord. It's a praise that's to occur not just in our formal times of worship, for which, of course, again, we're privileged, but with every moment that we're living. Because the Lord doesn't deserve anything less than that from us. And so our attitude shouldn't be, well, after I finish this hour here, or a few minutes after that, of praising God, that's the end of it until next week. When I leave this place and I go greet people, I do it in the, with the mindset that I need to be praising God as I do that. When I go home and I, I sit down in my house and maybe start to eat there or whatever or visit with people there, well, that's where I need to be praising him too. And when I prepare for school and I'm getting ready to go to school tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but Tuesday, or I run my route on my truck, or I, I do my, my uh, work in the office, or I train my children, or I practice for my team, or I give of myself to others, or I spend my money, these aren't just my business, right? They're not just personal matters, they're matters of the Lord, because the Lord is the Lord of all. And I'm to be living in him and everything that I'm saying and doing and thinking from this time forth and forevermore. And I need to be that way because there is none like him. There's no one above him, there's no name that's above his name. There's nobody else that deserves that kind of attention, that kind of focus, because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not thine and another nine. No, it's yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Nobody else. So if that's so, then everybody else in the world needs to recognize that as well. From the place where the sun rises to the place where it sets. The Lord was not supposed to be praised only in Israel. He was to be praised, he was deserved to be praised from the east to the west because he's sovereign over all and there's nobody and nothing that's greater than he. That's why there's a Christian mission. That's why the gospel word 
word spreads throughout the world because the world needs to know that God through Jesus Christ as well. They too need to know that life isn't about making a name for them, but about magnifying the name of the Lord. That's why we pray for Santa Clarita, even though we've never been there maybe in our lives. But we pray for that place because it's a place where the gospel word is going out so that more and more people might magnify the name of the Lord. They too need to turn their lives around through the Savior Jesus Christ and find a reason for living in the name that's above every name. That is what is said when we conclude the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now this is, this is how David himself prayed. Uh, and, uh, and we find that in 1 Chronicles 29.10, part of the inspiration of, of, if I may use that word, uh, of why this this uh, prayer has this kind of conclusion. It's, it's, a, it's a biblical kind of conclusion. In, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10, it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the, the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. It's not our glory that should be at the forefront, then, of course, of our existence. It's not our honor that should be first in our lives. Yours is the glory. Yours, we say. We pray for things that will no doubt be affecting our lives, but it is not our glory for which we are praying, nor is it to be the reason for our prayers. Yours is the glory. Concerned as David was that God be honored in our lives and in the working of his world. Psalmist knows where and when the Lord should be praised like no other, but he also knows why. He says that the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. And those two statements cover all the elements of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On the one hand, you have the nations of the earth described in our psalm. As powerful as they can become collectively or individually, they still comprise the part of the, the earthly element that's subservient to the loftiness of God. And thank God that that's the way it is. On the other hand, you've got the heavens that are described in our psalm. No matter how glorious one describes the vastness of the universe, God's glory surpasses it all because he's the one who created it all. And so when, when you look at these things in, in, in this psalm, and, and the psalmist carries on in creating or in, in penning this psalm by the inspiration of the Spirit, you, you come away looking and say, well, as we do pray, there, there isn't any comparison between the glory of our Lord and our own. The problem is, right, is when we, we try to leave the glory of God out, 
and then we think well, we've got nobody to compare to to ourselves because who's greater than ourselves? That's, that's the mentality that, that we all attempted to take. Leave God out of the picture, then I'm the picture. But there isn't any comparison when you put the glory of the Lord in the picture with ourselves. He's the, the Almighty, the Great, the King of Kings, the Ancient of Days, the Lord of Lords, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of Hosts, the Owner of a Cattle of a Thousand Hills. And when we compare Him to us, then how could we expect Him, who is so great, we use that word transcendent, beyond us, to want to be imminent, to want to be with us, to stoop down and consider us in our prayers when, when there can be times when we can't even get certain people to say more than hello to us. If that, or if you think about the, the, the potentates or the superiors, who if we walked by them and we said hello, we wouldn't expect them to say boo to us then how could it be that, that a God so great would be willing to listen to us, to respond to us, to care for us, because in comparison to the Lord, who are we? Hannah, the barren wife of Elkanah, certainly knew that. He, she said, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more, talk no more so very proudly, she says. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The children of Israel who were slaves in the land of, of Egypt knew that. Sarah, who was barren, knew that. Rachel, who had no children, knew that. Uh, the wife of Manoah and the mother of Samson knew that. Elizabeth knew that. The Virgin Mary knew that. Who were they to be considered by the Almighty God? Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What an awesome thing, because behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, because he who is mighty done great things for me. The humble estate of his servant, and holy is his name. There wasn't anything special about the Virgin Mary. Far from it. She knew it herself. It was God who had done great things for her, and he could do, she could do nothing but to give praise to God for them. Hannah, Mary, and the psalmist knew that God was highly to be, to be praised, but the question had to be asked, then how could such a lofty God ever consider the most humiliated of people? In biblical times, a picture of humility or humiliation was the married woman without a child. As Hannah said, and as the psalmist said, being without a child was like being poor in the dust, needy in the ash heap. That description in itself was the emblem of deepest poverty, where by day a person would sit calling the passers-by for alms and hide themselves in the ashes that had been warmed by the sun at night. And that was the view of the childless by the servant of the Lord. 
Children were viewed as precious, valued, treasured. The difference between being a mother and not being a mother was the difference between poverty and riches. In biblical times and and biblically, children are viewed as treasures from the Lord. It would be through children being born, after all, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of the woman. Children were born then for God's sake, for Christ's sake, so that they too might be able to say who is like the Lord our God. And you might have been in those days poor financially, but if you had children born to you, if as a woman you could be a mother, you were viewed as rich indeed. You had reason for joy. And Hannah was in that situation. She, along with others, and not just mothers, mind you, could ask question. How could the highly exalted God lower himself to somebody as low as me? But then the psalmist asks, but who is like the Lord our God? Nobody's like him. Others might snub us. And others might be snobs. But not the Lord our God. Like the way that we would act by nature or be treated by others, the Lord is like that. The Lord is like no other. Because God is not the stereotyped stuffed shirt. His ways are not like the gods that cannot smell or taste or think or care. And his ways are not like the mannerisms of of sinful men who think either because they're educated or because they're rich or because they have a certain name, they can treat other people like dirt. This great God condescends to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth, and he raises the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. God transforms. He won 80s people. In biblical times, he exalted God. He used those children given to the lowly. And they were all in that boat for his purposes. And he didn't look at those offspring, he didn't look at those children as liabilities to the world, as those who were going to cramp people's style, who was going to give them a hard time, who make them say, you know what, I'd rather have dogs and cats than I would to have kids. No, he he viewed those children as assets to his glory and to his people. Boys and girls that are here tonight, that's why God brought you into this world, so you can be an asset to your families, to the schools where you go, to the glory of God's name. That's why you're here. That's why we're all here. To the barren woman, women, God gave Isaac, Joseph, 
Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. And in climax, the exalted God gives to the lowly virgin a child, the Lord Jesus Christ. God exalted, most high, lowers himself as no one else can and stoops to exalt the lowly. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's what we're called to rejoice about. The God is not the snob. Called us not to be ones ourselves. The capstone to this theme is the Lord Jesus. Not only does God exalted lower himself to the gracious lowly, to be gracious to lowly Mary, and displaying his condescending care to Mary, God exalted lowers himself and takes on sinful flesh to become sin for us in the person of Jesus Christ in order to truly exalt a humanity that has been humiliated in sin. Who's like the Lord our God? Is he worth a couple hours of worship a week? Come on! So when we pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, we need not be afraid that the Almighty is too great for us to approach. We can be more certain that he will hear our prayer than that we desire that for which we ask. Because we're not praying to a great stuffed shirt. Or we might find ourselves that way sometimes and pardon God for us when we are. But that's not the God to whom we're praying. It's just the opposite. Because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We come in confidence. We're not coming to the snob. It's actually that loftiness that makes us pray. <clears throat> because God has used his kingdom and his power and his glory in, in, in condescending care through his son in order that we through faith might be exalted as children of God and sit as princes at a table. God in all his holiness is able and willing to consider our God-glorifying requests even today. He's willing to care. And he's able. You see, and that's why the Catechism has said, we've made all these requests of you because as our all-powerful king, you, you not only want to, but you're able to give us all that's good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. God is no snob. God is concerned about the needs of his people. And for the sake of his son, it's not below him to consider the needs of his needy servants. 
And that's why we pray. And that's why we can pray in confidence. Because even if others snub us, and they'll do it, God won't. We're also called to follow that humble example. Lest we consider ourselves better than God. God is so exalted. And yet he's willing to pour out his condescending care on the lowly to change their lives for the good. That's what Christ did. He became poor so that we could become rich in him. It's no wonder that we in Christ can say with the psalmist in an even more clearer way, on this side of the cross. Who is like the Lord our God? For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, should we? Shall we? Heavenly Father, we're asking that you'll help us in this life in which you've called us to live, to see that everywhere we go, everything we do, is a time for us to praise you for what you have done and to just take joy in knowing that the very serving we do is a privilege, that even in that, just in knowing that we can be your servants in reflection of your son, is reason to praise you. You are so beyond us, but you are not away from us. And you care condescendingly. So much so for your people that you raise them out of the ash heap. You raise them, Lord, to be princes of your people. You change people's lives for the good. You exalt what's been humiliated. Thanks to your son who came to be humiliated for us and who now reigns exaltedly. Who is like you? May we live as those who believe this as we pray to you, seeking your help and doing so with the confidence of knowing that you will so hear us for the sake of Jesus Christ and fill the needs of your people completely unto the day of Christ. May you accept our prayers for Jesus.